0: Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. If you didn't already receive an outline sheet, the gentleman will be coming by and putting those in your hands as we open our Bibles this evening to 1 Samuel, the 19th chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 19, 1 Samuel chapter 19. And we'll begin our reading in verse 1. Thank you to the ushers for helping us out. 1 Kings chapter 19. Beginning in verse 1, the Word of God says, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and withal how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. 1 Kings 19, and we're in the second verse. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. You recall that Elijah had been responsible for the death 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, actually they'd been responsible for their own death and turning away from Jehovah God. And now Jezebel, a follower of the god Baal, is threatening God's servant Elijah. And as he receives this threat, 1 Kings 19 and verse 3, And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and requested for himself that he might die. He said, it's enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm not better than my father's. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was a cake baking in the coals and a cruse of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he rose and did eat and drink, and went, and the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb the mount of God. He came thither unto a cave and lodged there, and behold the word of the Lord came to him, and said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant thrown down thine altars, slain thy prophets with a sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord God passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire a still small voice. It was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in the mantle and went out and stood in the entering of the cave and behold there came a voice unto him that said, What doest thou here, Elijah? And He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, slain thy prophets with a sword and I, even I only, am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest, anoint Haziel to be king of Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nim- Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphet, of abel shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Haziel shall Jehu slay, and him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet... I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees of which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. Go over to chapter 2 of 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 2. We're going to pick up our reading in 2 Kings chapter 2, the ninth verse. 2 Kings 2 and verse 9, It came to pass, when they were gone over, that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And he said, Thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I'm taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that Behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it. And he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. He took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. And he took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elisha went over. And when the sons of the prophets which were to view at Jericho saw him, they said, "'The spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha.' And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. They said unto him, "'Behold now, there be with thy servants 50 strong men. "'Let them go, we pray thee, "'and seek thy master, lest peradventure "'the spirit of the Lord hath taken him up "'and cast him upon some mountain or some valley. "'And he said, "'Ye shall not send.' "'When they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, "'Send.' "'They sent therefore 50 men,' They sought three days and found him not. And when they came again to him, for he tarried in Jericho, he said to them, did I not say unto you, go not? Last week, on the 16th of May, Kim Roberts published the findings of a serious and a sobering study. It was published through Media Watch. The article was entitled, Over Age 60. According to Roberts, 91% of over 1,000 CEOs of large Christian ministries in America, over 91% of those CEOs of these large Christian ministries in America are over the age of 60. Just last month, on the 23rd of April, Christianity Today magazine, a large evangelical magazine that covers the globe, published an article which indicated 16% of Protestant lead pastors are 40 and younger. The average age of lead pastors among Protestants in America today is 52, which is up over the last 30 years. 30 years ago, it was 44. 30 years later now, the average age of lead pastors in Protestants in America is 52. The magazine article went on to say that in the next seven years, one quarter of all the pastors in America intend to retire. I attended a meeting just a couple of weeks ago with the Gospel Fellowship Association Mission. At that particular meeting, Dr. Bruce Bruce McAllister, who watches over placement services for churches that are looking for pastors, said to me, there are 69 churches on our database right now that are looking for pastors, and we only have 15 pastors who are looking for churches to fill. Later in that same day, at that same meeting, I heard someone say, there are 350 Southern Baptist churches in North Carolina right now that are seeking pastors, churches in North Carolina without pastors to fill their pulpits. This trend has impacted us even here at Colonial Hills Baptist Church. You say, how's that? Well, if you've been following and praying, we've been seeking God's will for a youth pastor for quite some time. We are intending to bring a person to your attention Coming up on the second week of July, and more than that, even in having interns to serve with us here, we've, in, we've found it to be an increasingly challenging time to find those who are interested in moving forward in the service of the Lord. As we open our Bibles this evening to Second Kings, First and 2 Kings, we remember that Elijah faced the evil prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, and 450 prophets of Baal died in a single day. Then, wicked queen Jezebel, a follower of the god Baal herself, threatened to kill Elijah. In First Kings 19, you recall that in verse 2, she says, let him know that if by tomorrow his life is not like one of the lives of the men that he's taken, then it will be a surprise, she basically says to me. Jezebel has threatened the life of Elijah, and Elijah is afraid, verse Three reminds us of that. When he saw that, he arose and went for his life. Elijah feared the words of Queen Jezebel. And in verse 9 of First Kings 19, he finally comes to a place where he can rest. He came thither into a cave and he lodged there. Elijah was discouraged. He had literally gone from the mountaintop of blessing, seeing 450 prophets of Baal executed down into the valley Of discouragement because of the statement of Queen Jezebel. Elijah actually thought that he was the only person left who was in truth serving the Lord. And so we read in verse 10 at the end of the verse, he complains to the Lord, I, even I only, am left. And in verse 14, he says the same thing, I, even I only, am left. Elijah wondered if his labor for the Lord was in vain. In 1 Kings chapter 19, God communicates with Elijah, and God lets Elijah know that the work of God will continue. The work of God will continue. And the work of God is going to continue as Elijah hands his mantle off, so to speak, and literally, to Elisha. Now, both Elijah and Elisha are from Samaria. Both Elijah and Elisha are going to see God perform miracles through their means. Both men are involved in training prophets. What we discover here in the Old Testament would be called the school of the prophets. Elijah appears suddenly on the scene in the Word of God. Elisha comes more gradually. We don't know anything of the history of Elijah other than he stood up and said, it's not going to rain, and it didn't rain. Elisha, on the other hand, a second-generation prophet, if you will, comes from Abel meholik He's a wealthy farmer. We know the name of his father. We know where he lived. We know the business that he was involved in. All of that is revealed to us in 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah spends his last years training Elisha for ministry. And Elisha spends the first years of his ministry with a very vulnerable prophet by the name of Elijah. But I find as we open our Bibles this evening, a message for our times Because a careful consideration of the ministries of Elijah and Elisha make one point very clearly. And the point is this, that the work of God continues. The work of God continues. As we examine the text this evening, we discover some truths that ought to be applied when we're discouraged, when we hear things like I shared this evening about the state of ministries and the state of the work of God, at least here in America. And the work of God continues, we discover, in the passage to which we've turned when we remain faithful to that work. Jezebel's threat, after all, had caused Elijah to fear for his life. Jezebel's threat had caused Elijah to run from his responsibilities. And in verse 4 of 1 Kings chapter 19, we find Elijah so very discouraged that he went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and requested for himself that he might die. It's enough, O oh Lord, he said. I've had enough. Just take my life from me, O oh Lord. Take away my life. I'm not better than any of my fathers. Elijah provides a classic example, a classic model of a man in the Slav Despond. He is very depressed. He's the classic example of depression in the pages of God's Word. He's gone from the mountaintop of great power and victory down into the valley in a very short journey. And God deals with him ever so kindly in 1 Kings 19. How sweet to remember that he knows our frames and he remembers that we are but dust. In his kindness, God dispatches an angel with a message that will minister to Elijah's heart. Elijah is strengthened by literal angel food. The angel food gives him strength and along the way, He's strengthened for His heavenly service. For anyone who's ever gone through the valley of depression, or perhaps is in the valley of depression this evening, I find in this text that God has given to us three stabilizing aids to help us when we go through times of terrible discouragement. Aid number one, the necessity of exercise, the necessity of exercise. In verse 8, we read that Elijah, in the strength of what he ate and drank, went 40 days and 40 nights unto Mount Horeb. No question, Elijah is going to be restored to mental and spiritual health on a very vigorous exercise routine. Exercise is one of those aids, a practical aid that God has given to us when we feel discouraged. One of the best things you can do when you start to feel discouraged or despondent or if you enter into some measure of depression, is get moving. Get moving. Aid number two that I see in this passage is rest. In verse 5, we read that Elijah slept under a juniper tree. And often those who are most discouraged find that their sleep is most disrupted. That's why I began by saying exercise. One of the best ways to restore our sleep patterns is to wear ourselves out a little bit. This man had an exercise routine, this man had a sleep routine, and more than that, he ate angel food. There was a cake that was bacon on the coals and a cruise of water, verse 6 says, I wish I knew the ingredients of what that angel served to Elijah at that time, but I know this, a proper diet is a practical tool to warding off emotional instability. And an improper diet can cause us to be very vulnerable. Now, God is about to recommission. Elijah for 10 more years of faithful service. Elijah is going to remain faithful in the work of God because Elijah hears the counsel of the Lord. Beginning in verse 9, he came hither unto the cave and lodged there, and God begins this dialogue with Elijah. What doest thou hear, Elijah? God asks a penetrating question that touches Elijah's soul. By the time we come to verse 12, the Spirit of God tells us that God's Spirit is speaking to Elijah with a still, small voice. Elijah was rested. Elijah was refreshed. And until Elijah was rested, I want you to hear me now, and Elijah was refreshed, it seemed it was absolutely impossible for him to be meditating or hearing the Word of God. There are those who wrestle with the whole idea of pharmaceuticals being used to provide for emotional stability. I found that it's true that there are times when it's necessary that pharmaceuticals be used for stabilization. While we would never want to depend upon a pharmaceutical for long-term emotional stability, I found this true as well. There are times that people can be so low in their depressive state, that it's impossible to hear the Word of God. Now, Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Surely it is that stabilizing force that causes us to grow strong in the Lord and the power thereof. We can't live without the Word of God. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 15, I did find thy words and eat them, and they became the strength of my soul. But there can become times when people for emergency purposes may need to find themselves emotionally stabilized enough to at least open their Bible and hear the Spirit of God one more time speaking in a still, small voice. But let's be responsible first. Before we run to that emergency aid, we ought to check off what God has given to us in this text. Have I exercised? Am I eating right? Am I resting rightly? Then I can hear the counsel of God and I can understand a bit the conditions of my age. There's no question by the time this conversation continues that Elijah is very perceptive as to the conditions of his age. In verse 14, he subs up the age in which he's living with these words, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, slain thy prophets with a sword. And I, even I only, am left. Elijah is adept now at describing the conditions of Israel in his time. God expects his work to continue, however, even when the description of the time in which Elijah was living was desperate. Elijah was living in desperate times. People were persecuting to the point of death the prophets that God had sent. They were tearing down the altars of God. They were moving forward in perversity. This was a desperately difficult time, and Elijah felt like he was standing alone in that time. Let me reflect a bit on our times. We are living in a time when indicators are that there are fewer and fewer people actively involved in the service of the Lord. Back in 1940, statistics began to be taken with regard to The number of people in America who are members of churches, synagogues, and mosques. Of course, the percentage of people in America who at that time, 1940, were participating in mosques was very slim. Did you know that from 1940 to the year just about 2000, over a 60 year period, that percentage of people in America who were members of mosques, synagogues, and churches was very, very stable? It would vary a little bit from 70% up to about 74%, but it typically landed 72 73% of all Americans were part of a church, part of a synagogue, part of a mosque. They were living out their faith in a place of their choosing. That was a static number. That was a solid number for some 60 years, six decades. That's a long time. But beginning around the year 2000, Until the year in which we're now living, there's been a very, very, very accelerated and rapid decline of people participating in churches, mosques, and synagogues in America. So much so that currently, after 60 years of national stability, currently it's 47%. 47% of Americans identify with a church, a mosque, or a synagogue. That's a rapid decline after six decades of security and stability. What has happened? Well, there are a lot of people who would talk about a lot of different things when it comes to why the decline. People would talk about the advance of secularism, the advance of an entertainment culture that is base and degrading. But if we're honest, there was a whole lot of secularism going on in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and 90s, and a whole lot of entertainment that was degenerate and debased during that era. There are many indicators or many factors, rather, in why the rapid decline, the accelerating decline of religious interest in America and the stability that that religious interest brings. I have a particular, particularly personal observation that I want to share with you this evening. Put a mark here in 1 Kings 19 and come over with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. There's one correlating factor that a lot of people fail to observe. The church has always stood against the world, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, are not of the Father, they're of the world, and the world is passing away. The church has always been intended to be countercultural. And be not conformed to this world, Romans 12 and verse 2, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The church is a counter-cultural movement. Why the rapid decline? Why the rapid decline of interest in all things religion in America over the last 23 years? Why stability for 60 and total instability, a rapid decline from 73% to 47% in 23 years? The church has always been intended by God to be a countercultural movement. We're not to be loving the world. In fact, the Bible tells us in James that friendship with the world is enmity with God. You can't have it both ways. We're to be all in for the Lord and very careful about where we walk in this world, for the world will grab the spiritual life right out of you. So here's Pastor Phelps' correlating observation comes from Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 28. Let's read it. Wherefore we, the author of the book of Hebrews writes, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, praise the Lord, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably. Now that word serve in verse 28 in many modern translations is translated with the word worship. That's a good translation. The word serve in verse 28 is the Greek word lutreo, and lutreo is typically translated worship. So, I'm going to read it that way. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may worship God acceptably. I'm going to pause there. If it's possible to worship God acceptably, listen, it's also possible to worship God unacceptably. There's acceptable worship and there's unacceptable worship. And so the author of the book of Hebrews tells us what acceptable worship looks like at the end of verse 28. Here's a verse you ought to underline and meditate on. Acceptable worship is noted for its reverence. How do you define that, Pastor Phelps? It's like the Supreme Court Justice who was asked to define pornography and made the statement, you know it when you see it. When it comes to reverence, you know it when you see it, you ought to know it when you don't see it as well, and you ought to be honest enough to be able to tell the difference between the two. Reverence and godly fear, why? For our God is a consuming fire. Back in Hebrews chapter 5, the author of the book of Hebrews says something startling to his hearers. He said, I'd like to tell you more about Melchizedek. I'd like to tell you of how Melchizedek is a perfect parallel to Jesus Christ." How that he was without father, without mother, without any genealogical origin. He was not a Levitical priest. And that's exactly how Christ is is parallel to Melchizedek from the city of Peter. I want to tell you more about that, but the author of Hebrews pauses and he says, I can't. Because such meditations are for those who have been to the gymnasium. They're for those who can eat spiritual meat. And as he's writing this book of Hebrews, he actually says, There's a difference between those who can discern from what they've learned from the Old Testament and those who have just brushed over the thoughts of the Old Testament and can't put them together in a form that makes sense. So I'm not going to talk to you any more about Melchizedek. I feel that way in Hebrews chapter 12. Because this passage ends, it's a New Testament passage, and it ends by saying our God is a consuming fire, and it's in reference to worship. So, New Testament believer can your mind go back to the Old Testament? And can you think of any worship services that were broken up because God sent fire? Well, I can think about Nadab and Abihu. They offered some strange formulary of incense. And when they offered that strange incense to God, God at the entrance into the tabernacle struck them dead. He said, you don't mess around when you come into worship. And I can think about the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 32 When Moses came down from the mount, having received the commandments of God, he encountered his own brother, Aaron, the high priest of Israel, had taken the amulets and the earrings from the children of Israel, melted them in the fire, and out came poof, golden calf. Who knew? And Aaron had encouraged the children of Israel with these words, tomorrow we're going to have a worship service to Jehovah God. If you know the Old Testament, you know that that worship service that included an idol did not end well. By the end of that worship service, there were 3,000 people who were dead. If we're still plugged in this evening, I'm still asking a question and I'm hoping to bring a corollary here. And Here's the corollary. Did you know that there's been a rapid acceleration of irreverent worship in America for the last 25 years? And there's been a rapid declension in any interest in anything having to do with religion in those same 25 years. And the singular factor between those things that we consider is this word reverence. Where has reverence gone? Where has reverence gone? Our God is a consuming fire. Acceptable worship includes reverence. Back in the 1960s, the pastor of the largest church in the world was a man by the name of Yangi Cho, Yangi Cho pastored a church in Seoul, South Korea of some 300,000 souls. Yangi Cho was a syncretist. That means he wove together all kinds of religious thought. Claiming to be a Christian, he was a syncretist and he came up with a design for worship that came over into America in the late 1960s and the 1970s through the Calvary Chapel movement and then the Vineyard Christian Fellowship. particular thought of worship came under two headings. We're going to have a celebration service. That's once a week when we gather together on Sunday morning, and then we're going to have cell groups. The cell groups, we have intimate conversation with people in the neighborhoods. The thing that you might not know about Yonggi Cho, he had Buddhists leading cell groups in Seoul, South Korea. He had unbelievers leading cell groups, but he had many, many people gathering in the celebration service. The Calvary chapels and some of the Pentecostals and the Vineyard Christian Fellowship got a hold of that and brought that over to America and began to change the dynamics of worship services. Along about that same time, 60s on into the 70s, 80s, and 90s, there was a rapid acceleration and interest in a different sound in worship services called contemporary Christian music. By the time you hit 2000, such things that were once novel had become mainstream under the heading of seeker sensitive ministries like Willow Creek and like Saddleback contemporary worship services became mainstream and as they became mainstream there's one thing that they missed there's some worship that's acceptable and some worship that's unacceptable and the difference is where's the reverence and at the very same time we can say what well, yes but pastor Phelps those churches are growing but typically they're growing with people who are malcontented from churches that move over and shift their membership, and then watch it over a period of time because students of this type of growth have noticed something also, that the people don't stick. They come to the cafeteria for a while and then they don't stick. And the world round about us continues to be populated and more and more people are being born and more and more people as they're being born are saying this, you know what? If I wanna go to a good concert, if I want to see a sight and sound show, I can go downtown and get that. I don't need to go to church for it. Did you know the same thing happened in the 60s and 70s among the Protestant, the liberal Protestant denominations? It's true. Back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, the liberal Protestant denominations became imbibed with liberalism when they denied the virgin birth, they denied the resurrection, they denied the inerrancy and infallibility inspiration of God's word and over time you know what happened their Sunday school attendance was plummeting so quickly in the 60s and 70s that they were saying over a million two million and even five million young people a year were leaving the Sunday schools of America what happened the Sunday schools weren't offering anything they weren't talking about the redemption provided by the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior they weren't teaching the Bible why would I go to Sunday school if they're not teaching the Bible And why would I go to church if there's no reverence? So I come back here to 1 Kings. And I realize that we're living in a time when we are beginning to feel more and more like Elijah. And we need to be reminded that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The conditions of our culture are impacting our churches. And notice then how Elijah hears from the voice of God. God speaks to Elijah, beginning in verse 15. The Lord said to him, Go return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest, anoint Haziel to be king over Syria, Jehu to be the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel, Elisha, and we're going to zero in on Elisha, the son of Shaphat of abel Mahola. shalt thou anoint to be the prophet in thy room. I discover in this passage that God is giving a commission To Elijah to anoint kings and to anoint a new prophet in his stead because he's expecting a real change in this culture. God's power is sufficient enough to bring providential change in any culture. Elijah has heard the counsel of God. The discouraged prophet understands the reality of his circumstances, and now God says, go out and anoint a prophet who will come after you, remembering it's not by might, it's not by my power, but by my spirit said the Lord. God is going to do a work through Elisha, a reviving work because, listen, because God's work continues. God's work will continue if His servants will be faithful in the work. God's work will continue when we realize that God has others who are involved in the work. Remember what Elijah said in verse 10 and again in verse 14, I, only I alone, am left. that's not what God witnesses. In 2 Kings, in the 19th chapter, the 31st verse, God says, I'll never, I'll never leave myself without a witness. That's going to be repeated over and again, that principle that God will always have a witness. You know, sometimes it's easy for us to feel all alone, whether it's in our home or in our office or in our ministry, in our community. We're all alone. We're, We're the only ones standing But I find it interesting and encouraging in this passage that that is a falsehood that Satan breathes to cause us to be more and more discouraged. God counts the faithful. In verse 18, I have left 7,000 in Israel, all the knees of which have not bowed to Baal. Elijah couldn't see anyone that was faithful, but God saw every single one who was. Now listen really carefully. I am a separatist. I am a Biblicist, and as a Biblicist, I am a separatist, because as I read my Bible, I read 1 Peter 1 and verse 15 that says, be ye holy, for I am holy, saith the Lord. That's a transgenerational commandment. Come out from the world, the Word of God reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and touch not the unclean thing. We're to be separated from the world and separated completely unto God. The church, after all, is a countercultural movement to be very different and live lives that please the Lord. Confession. It's easy for a separatist to think like Elijah and fall into the Elijah syndrome and think we're the only ones left. How encouraging to know that that is false thinking, that God always has those who will stand. For him. Now, not every ministry is going to do everything the way we do it at Colonial. Praise the Lord. Not every Christian is going to look exactly like Pastor Phelps. Praise the Lord. Not all of us are going to sing like Colonial's choir. Hallelujah. We thank the Lord for all the wonderful things He's doing here, but we ought to be honest enough to say that we serve a God who commends the faithful even when we don't know those faithful ones, and even when they don't exactly line up to who we are. I'm not losing the reverence principle to understand this. The end of verse 18, God is commending those 7,000 who have not bowed to Baal, whose mouths have never practiced that pagan cultural practice of kissing the Baal God. And so we say with Philippians chapter 1, with the Apostle Paul, if Christ is preached, we rejoice. And sometimes when Christ is preached in envy and strife, yet we still rejoice. In a day and age when we begin a message by saying there's a downward trajectory of interest in ministry, it's encouraging to know that ministry will continue by God's grace if we'll remain faithful. And ministry will continue by God's grace because there are others involved. And even when we sometimes feel ourselves alone, we need to go into this passage and say, Thank the Lord for every person who names the name of Christ and preaches the name of Christ with integrity. There's a third way to ward off discouragement in this passage. That third way is this. We need to reach out to others for the work. God encounters this discouraged prophet. In order for this discouraged prophet to move ministry forward, God commissions Elijah. He commissions Elijah to anoint a king in Syria, to anoint a king for Israel, and also to anoint a prophet who would come into his stead. And so we read of that in verse 19, that Elijah departed thence and found Elisha. His first priority was to get someone else involved in ministry with him. He found Elisha, the prophet, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, he with the 12th, and Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle on him. And he, that's Elisha, left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me pray that I could kiss my father and my mother, and then I'll follow thee. And he said unto him, go back again. What have I done unto thee? He returned back from him, took a yoke of oxen, slew them, boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen, gave unto the people they did eat, and he arose and went after Elijah, and he ministered unto him. God has given Elijah a commission to build men, to build men. For 10 years, Elijah is gonna serve with Elisha. For 10 years, Elisha is gonna be pouring water On Elijah's hands after Elijah eats. The prophet of fire is going to have someone who stands at his side and grows along the way. And every New Testament minister, and that includes you, Sunday school teacher, junior church worker, song leader, minister with teens, every New Testament worker has a responsibility according to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, to receive the things that you've received of the Lord and to distribute those things to others, the things that you've heard of me, The same to commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Did you know that Colonial Hills Baptist Church has a distinctive, many distinctives, but here's one of them. Colonial Hills Baptist Church is a church that very intentionally seeks to get people involved in ministry. This is not a spectator arena. This is a servant's arena. This is a place where your shoulder is going to be tapped many, many times in many, many ways asking you to serve. Why? Because David cried out about who God is and who God made him to be when he said in Psalm 8, when I consider the heavens and all you've made and yet you've put man in charge of all this. God delegated through David, through Adam, a stewardship over the earth. And we find the wisest person ever to have lived in 2 Kings chapter 4, the lineup of those that he sent over his kingdom to watch over the horses and to watch over the stables and to watch over the meals and want even to be the king's friend. Real discipleship only happens when there's delegation. I say that for a purpose. This summer, we have the privilege of having ministerial interns with us. I look forward to that. One of the greatest joys in ministry is to be able to get others involved in ministry as well. It's a blessing to me that tomorrow evening I'm heading down to preach elsewhere and as I head down to preach elsewhere I've asked Chase to come along and accompany. I've asked Johnny Stuttle to come along and preach. I didn't do that for a sermon illustration. I want to do that by nature. I want to be able to be one who at the end of life's journey can say I found greater joy in helping others to learn to minister than to ministering myself. This summer I have the privilege of hosting my first grand intern. They said, what's a grand intern? Well, years ago, when I was a youth pastor in Colorado, there were three very capable young men in our youth ministry out there, Peter, James, and their brother Colin. (laughs) All three of those young men came and interned under our ministry when I served the Lord in New Hampshire, and Peter and James, or Colin rather, and James got involved together and planted a church in Newton, Massachusetts outside of Boston. This year, Colin Landry's son, Peter, is going to come and be an intern. It's my first privilege of being, serving rather, with a a grand intern. His dad was an intern before, and his dad has remained faithful. All of us have a responsibility to be building men, and I'm privileged to pastor a church that gets that, but it's still a responsibility of the pastor to remind us of that. How I rejoiced recently to hear that Cameron Rankin was called to be a pastor in Wisconsin and remembered when Cameron was an intern here. Many of you have inquired about our son Caleb who's recently taken a church in South Carolina. My greatest recollection is Caleb interned here for three summers. Our son Dan is serving up in Michigan. He interned here. He's a part of this ministry. You look around and you see Pastor Ben Hicks and you see Pastor Andy Montgomery. They they interned here. Encourage those who are involved as we build men along the way. For after all, by building men, we build ministries. When you turn over to Second Kings chapter 2, reaching out to others for the work is not only building men, but it's building ministries. In Second Kings chapter 2, you read in verse 3 of the sons of the prophets and verse 5 of the sons of the prophets. And verse 7, again, you read of the... Who are these sons of the prophets? Well, the sons of the prophets are participating in Old Testament schools, of ministry. They're the Old Testament seminarians, if you will. And those sons of the prophets met in strategic places. They were at Gilgal and Bethel and Jericho and Jordan. You realize that the challenge of our day is an increasingly evident challenge. We have, as churches and pastors and ministries, trusted a great deal in schools to help and aid in the training of another generation of servants. It's been that way in America since the Log College began. That's Harvard. Harvard, Princeton, Dartmouth, Yale, they all started to train ministers and they all went astray. In our generation, we not only have the challenge of schools going astray, but we have a greater challenge and that challenge is this. Schools cost a lot of money. A lot of ministerial students are finding it difficult to pay 30 and 35 thousand dollars a year room board and tuition and come out in the ministry as a youth pastor and not make enough to pay off their school debt. And more than that, they're discovering that churches today don't really much entertain the thought of having a pastor who's 25. After all, that's what youth pastors are for. They're 25. We'll wait until they're 35. Meanwhile, along the way, some guys are getting out of school and saying, The doors aren't open because of my youth. What a shame. Somehow we've forgotten that Charles Spurgeon was 16 when he began to pastor. My dad planted his church, first church at 19. We ought to be rejoicing along the way to see what we saw tonight, to have a young lady, a ninth grader, stand up and sing a solo. That's rare, folks, and it shouldn't be. Our heart ought to be, oh, Lord, help our young people stand in the gap so that we can recognize those who are entering in the work. Elijah assumes the ministry of Elijah and leaves behind. Elijah leaves Elisha behind to do the work. And you recall that Elisha has cried out in verse nine of chapter two, I want a double portion. What does that mean? Well, it means he wants to be seen as the elder son. Back in Deuteronomy, there's a double portion that's given to the elder son when the father passes away. What does that mean? It means simply that the elder son is the one who stands as the authority in the family when the father passes. And Elisha is saying this. He's not asking for a double portion of miracles, though that will happen. He's simply saying, let people recognize That if Elijah is taken away, God has given me the responsibility to lead this good work that He established. Oh, the test of His ministry would be real. He would find Himself along the way having many people say to Him, Turn around, turn around, turn back. But the testimony that He receives from ministry is equally real. As the Spirit of God takes away Elijah, a mantle falls upon Him in verse 13. With that mantle, Elijah's, or Elisha, rather, is going to be able to strike the Jordan so that it separates and the sons of the prophets are going to see. There's a testimony at this moment that Elisha is receiving, that the power of God is on him. I had a conversation with Pastor Ben this week. Please don't be a phony about this, but I want you to prayerfully consider this. I said, hey, Pastor Ben, can you remember the first time somebody encouraged you about the possibility of being involved in ministry? He said, yes. Yes. I had a school teacher who said, you know, I I could somehow see you being my pastor someday when he was very young. I said, well, I have a similar encounter that I could share. The first time I ever preached in my home church in West Virginia, it was a mess. And after it was done, a fellow that I respected a great deal, I'm sure that I'd never had a conversation with him, but he was a godly man in the church, far older than I, stood up and gave a testimony that so encouraged my heart that I've never, ever forgotten it. The sons of the prophets were able to recognize when the mantle falls upon Elisha that this is God's man, and it's his time to be involved in ministry. Isn't it interesting that Elijah is missing and the sons of the prophets say, hey, maybe we should send out a search party to search for Elijah? And Elisha is saying to them, no, that's not necessary. Really, it's not necessary. There's a tension in this transition of ministry, and that's to be expected. After all, Elisha represents another generation of ministry. But the good news is this, when we hear around about us of failures and challenges, we discover that God's work continues when we remain faithful to it. When we realize that yes, there are indeed others involved in the harvest field, and with discernment we say, praise the Lord. When we reach out to others for the work and recognize those that are entering into the work, little did Elijah know that Elisha would do more than double the miracles. And little do we know today that should the Lord tarry, God may from this congregation, from your family, of our sons and daughters, call out those who will be able to accomplish more for eternal value than we could ever dream. The fields are white, the laborers are few. May God help us not to be discouraged, but to practice the principles that were practiced and seen in the life of Elijah and see God's work continue. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindie.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.